0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 28th edition of Warcom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A federal court judge ruled that SEGA is obligated to reimburse Medicare when injured workers receive Medicare benefits concurrently with a workers' compensation claim. Here's what happened in the case of California Insurance Guarantee Association versus Sylvia Burwell, the United States Secretary of Health and Human Services. SIGA is currently paying several claims under various workers' compensation policies issued by now-insolvent insurers. Some of these claimants also received payments from the Medicare for items and services that were otherwise covered by these policies. Where Medicare pays benefits for a loss that is also covered by another insurer, the Medicare Secondary Payer Statute requires those other insurance plans to reimburse Medicare. Thus, the United States demanded that SEGA reimburse it for the Medicare benefits paid to these claimants. SEGA refused, prompting the United States to commence collection proceedings. SEGA filed a declaratory and injunctive relief action against the government, contending that it was not required to reimburse the United States for Medicare benefits paid to individuals whose losses may also be covered by SEGA. The United States argued that claims made by the United States could never be defeated by a state imposed time limit. A federal judge in California granted the United States motion to dismiss portions of SEGA's complaint holding that California's insurance codes are preempted by federal law. And in another appellate case, the Court of Appeal ruled that Sega is not bound by another carrier's stipulation of joint liability. Here's what happened in the published case of Sega versus Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. In that case, Rosa Lopez sustained a cumulative injury, working as a grocery clerk by Superior Center Concepts. Two insurers, Care West Pegasus Modesto and Ulico Casualty Company, were jointly and severally liable for the injury. The insurers stipulated in a compromise and release agreement that they would allocate 52% of liability for the treatment charges to Care West and 48% to Ulico. Sega became involved in the case when Ulico became insolvent and was liquidated. SEGA asked to be dismissed from the case because it was authorized to pay only covered claims, those not covered by any other insurance that CareWest policy constituted this other insurance. But the WCAB denied SEGA's motion on the ground that the Care West-Ulico agreement in the compromise and release limited Care West's liability to roughly half thereby rendering Care West insurance unavailable as to the remaining half. The Appeals Board reasoned that the approved compromise and release was a final judgment that may not be relitigated, and after entry of that judgment, Care West's and Ulico's liability was no longer joint and several. The Court of Appeal disagreed, ruling that the argument reflects a basic misunderstanding of the nature of several liability, which is not, strictly speaking, a rule of liability at all. It is a rule of joinder. Several liability has nothing to do with and cannot be changed by apportionment of an obligation between promisors. The Court of Appeal concluded, that the CARE West Ulico compromise and release agreement did not relieve CARE West of its several liability for third party claims. The case was remanded to the WCAB with directions to dismiss Sega. A Texas federal jury has awarded five hundred million dollars in damages for defective hip implants. Johnson & Johnson and its DePuy unit were ordered to pay about $500 million to five plaintiffs who said they were injured by pinnacle metal-on-metal hip implants. After a two-month trial, jurors deliberated for a week before finding that the pinnacle hips were defectively designed and that the companies failed to warn the public about their risks. Jurors awarded about $140 million in total compensatory damages and about $360 million in punitive damages. A J&J spokesman said the company will appeal. This was the second federal trial involving the Pinnacle device. J&J was cleared of liability in the first trial, which ended in 2014. Verdicts in these early trials are not binding on the rest of the litigation, but are used to help gauge the value of the remaining claims. More than 8,000 pinnacle lawsuits have been consolidated in Texas federal court. All five plaintiffs are Texas residents who were implanted with metal-on-metal pinnacle hip devices. They said design flaws caused the devices to fail more frequently and quickly than expected, leading to injuries including tissue death, bone erosion, and high levels of metal in their blood. The plaintiff said that J&J and DePuy described the metal on metal hips as long-lasting, durable, and safe despite being aware of these risks, and they aggressively promoted them for use in younger, more active patients. But J&J has said that it researched and marketed the devices responsibly. DePuy stopped selling the metal-on-metal version of the Pinnacle devices in 2013. That year, it paid $2.5 billion to settle more than 7,000 lawsuits over a separate metal on metal hip device, the ASR, which was recalled in 2010. And now, our fraud report. The owner of an uninsured San Jose auto repair shop and her manager have been charged with fraud. After they denied that an employee who had lost three fingers in a workplace accident even worked for them, the two delayed the injuries employee from receiving any workers' compensation benefits for months. The same two defendants have been charged with making a false statement to prevent a worker from receiving workers' compensation benefits, making a false statement for reducing the insurance premium of a workers' compensation insurance policy, and failure to obtain workers' compensation insurance. If convicted of all charges, Singh faces a maximum of seven years' incarceration Takar faces a maximum of eight years incarceration, and both defendants would be ordered to pay full restitution. The investigation of the company started after the injured worker filed for benefits from the Uninsured Employers Benefit Trust Fund since the business was uninsured at the time of the injury. Subsequent to the accident, both Takar and Singh obtained workers' compensation insurance but then lied in the application by denying that the company had any work-related injuries within three years. 71-year-old David M. Morrow, M.D. of Rancho Mirage, is a cosmetic surgeon and dermatologist who was the owner of the Morrow Institute in Rancho Mirage. He pleaded guilty to health insurance fraud as a result of submitting bills for more than $3.4 million for procedures that he claimed were medically necessary, but in fact they were cosmetic procedures such as tummy tucks, nose jobs, and breast augmentations. He also pleaded guilty to one count of filing a false tax return after he failed to report more than $100,000 of income on his 2008 tax return, and more than $1.5 million on his 2009 tax return. Last year, a federal grand jury returned a 27-count indictment that outlined a scheme in which patients were lured to the Coachella Valley Surgery Center with promises that cosmetic procedures would be paid for by their union or PPO health insurance plans. The victim health insurance companies included Anthem Blue Cross, Blue Cross Blue Shield of California, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Regional Employer-Employee Partnership for Benefits, formerly known as the Riverside Employer-Employee Partnership, and Cigna. Morrow and others at the facility completely fabricated diagnoses, such as a hernia in the patient's official medical records and also fabricated test results and symptoms on medical records to cover up the actual medical procedures being performed. Tummy tucks were fraudulently billed as hernia repair or abdominal reconstruction surgeries. Rhinoplasties, which are nose jobs, were fraudulently billed as deviated septum repair surgeries, and breast lifts and augmentations were fraudulently billed as tuberous breast deformity. Morrow faces a statutory maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison for the conspiracy count and three years of imprisonment for filing the false tax return. Morrow is scheduled to be sentenced on September 23rd. Morrow has also agreed to pay full restitution to the victims. Charges against his wife, Linda Morrow, age 63, are currently pending. Koa Tan Nguyen, owner of the Script Life Pharmacy in Clovis, has agreed to pay the United States $200,000 to settle civil claims for statutory violations occurring at the pharmacy. A 2013 audit revealed multiple violations of the Controlled Substances Act. Script Life Pharmacy accepted and filled prescriptions that lacked required information, including the prescriber's DEA registration numbers and signatures. The audit also found shortages of several controlled substances, along with overages of several others. The Controlled Substances Act authorizes the DEA to regulate controlled substances to create a closed system of distribution that provides the legitimate drug industry with a unified approach to narcotic and dangerous drug control. All controlled substances, including prescription medications, are classified based upon the potential for abuse, dependence, profile, and medical value of the drugs. Regulations mandate that prescriptions for controlled substances include certain critical information and require pharmacies to maintain certain records and inventories of these controlled substances. These controls allow the DEA to protect the distribution system and prevent drug diversion and abuse. This case resulted from an investigatory audit by the DEA Fresno Diversion Group. And in regulatory news, Obamacare created the Consumer Operated and Oriented Plan Program, known as the Co-op Program. Under the Co-op Program, the Department of Health and Human Services distributed loans to consumer-governed nonprofit health insurance companies. So how did this work out? A Senate investigation report says that Congress initially allocated $6 billion for the Obamacare co op program with the goal of establishing co ops in all 50 states. From this allocation, HHS received $2.4 billion of taxpayer money to fund 23 co ops that participated in the program. Twelve of those 23 co ops have now failed leaving 740,000 people in 14 states searching for new coverage, and the taxpayer little hope of recovering the $1.2 billion in loans HHS dispersed to those failed insurance businesses. The co-ops ultimately suffered $376 million in losses in 2014 and more than $1 billion in losses in 2015. None of the failed co-ops have repaid a single dollar, principal or interest of the $1.2 billion in federal solvency and startup loans they received. In addition, there remains substantial liability for unpaid claims. The failed co-ops currently owe an estimated $742 million to doctors and hospitals. At least six co-ops currently owe more in medical claims alone than they hold in assets. Three of those co-ops have access to state guarantee funds who will pay some or all of the unpaid medical claims. The Colorado co-op projects that substantially all of its $96.6 million in unpaid medical claims will be paid by the state's guarantee fund. Similarly, the South Carolina's co-op estimates that all of its $48 million in unpaid claims will be paid by its guarantee fund. And the first co-op to close, Co-Opportunity, reports that $114.1 million of its unpaid medical claims have already been paid by the Iowa and Nebraska Guarantee Associations. The other three co-ops with serious shortfalls will not be bailed out by guarantee funds. The New York Co-op owes $222 million in its uh, shortfall, and it will not be covered by New York's Guarantee Fund. It is likely that some of the cost of these losses will translate to cost drivers in workers' compensation claims. Certainly, the Guarantee Funds will distribute the cost by way of assessments to other insurers who will in turn pass the cost to policyholders everywhere. Medical providers who are not paid in one system will demand higher fees to compensate them in another system. The epic failure of the Obamacare co-op program is not good news for anyone. (coughs) The WCIRB defined its 2016 agenda at the 100th annual meeting. Executives representing more than 60% of the regular membership met in Oakland for the 100th annual meeting of the WCIRB. The membership elected new insurer members to the Governing Committee and Classification and Rating Committee to fill vacancies created by expiring terms. The newly elected committee members will serve three-year terms expiring in 2019. Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company was re-elected and Preferred Employers Insurance Company was elected to the Governing Committee. National Union Fire Insurance Company of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania was re-elected and Pacific Compensation Insurance Company was elected to the Classification and Rating Committee. The WCIRB President and CEO Bill Mudge Open the meeting by highlighting some of the WCIRB's recent accomplishments and by providing an update on the status of its multi-year transformation effort. In the four years since the WCIRB has launched over 100 major initiatives dedicated to meeting the challenges of the next century, its focus is on becoming more agile, modern, and easier to do business with. It will continue to develop innovative new products and services that expand access to information and provide insight into system cost drivers. In 2016, there will be initiatives around Big Data, new technologies designed to speed the flow of data between the WCIRB and its members. A transformation of the Inspection Report and Classification Inspection Process And a continued evolution of the WCARB's various online services designed to expand real time self service access to data. The Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation has released its 21st Annual Report. The 313 page report presents information about the health and safety and workers' compensation systems in California and makes recommendations to improve their operations. The committee was created by legislation in 1993 and is charged with examining the health and safety and workers' compensation systems and recommending administrative or legislative modifications to improve everything. Senate Bill 863 incorporated many of Cheswick's previous recommendations for statutory improvements, and the DWC is carrying out many of the Commission's recommendations for administrative improvements. But not all of the past Cheswick recommendations have had success. It has for years recommended integration of workers' compensation medical care with the general medical care provided to patients by group health insurers. It says this would improve the quality and coordination of care, reduce overall medical expenditure and administrative costs, and derive other efficiencies in care. Research also supports the contention that an integrated 24-hour care system has the potential to create medical cost savings as well as shorten the duration of disability for workers. But so far, this ongoing annual suggestion has been a non-starter. But Cheswick continues in this report to find unrelenting systemic fraud. Although most California businesses comply with laws regarding health and safety and workers' compensation, some businesses do not and thus operate in the underground economy. Such businesses may not have all their employees on the official company payroll or may not report wages paid to employees that reflect their real job duties. The underground economy cost the state an estimated $8.5 billion to $10 billion in tax revenues every year. Cheswick identified another ongoing problem with the definition of first aid. Injuries that do not require treatment beyond first aid do not necessitate an employer report of injury for workers' compensation or a Cal-OSHA log. The definitions of first aid for those two purposes are different, leading to some uncertainty about when a minor injury is reportable. Even criminal evasion of workers' compensation obligations can hide behind that uncertainty. Employers have identified the conflicting definitions as a barrier to compliance and prosecutors have identified the conflicting definitions as a barrier to prosecution of willful violations. The definition of first aid is pertinent only to reporting requirements, so a change in the definition would not change an injured worker's right to receive treatment. Information about Cheswick and the 2015 annual report is available on the Cheswick website. And in medical news, the FDA has issued a draft guidance to help support the pharmaceutical industry in its development of generic versions of approved opioids with abuse deterrent formulations. These actions are among a number of steps the agency recently outlined to reassess its approach to opioid medications. It hopes to reverse the addiction epidemic while still providing patients in pain access to effective relief. The agency is encouraging industry efforts to develop pain medications that are more difficult to abuse. Abuse deterrent properties make certain types of abuse, such as crushing a tablet in order to snort the contents or dissolving a capsule in order to inject its contents, more difficult or less rewarding. It does not mean the product is impossible to abuse or that these properties necessarily prevent addiction, overdose, or death. Notably, the FDA has not approved an opioid product with properties that are expected to deter abuse if the product is swallowed whole. The FDA has required all sponsors of brand-name products with approved abuse deterrent labeling to conduct long-term epidemiological studies to assess their effectiveness in reducing abuse in practice. The draft guidance for generic abuse deterrent opioids follows the agency's final guidance for brand-name opioids, which was issued a year ago. The agency will also hold a public meeting later this year to discuss the draft guidance on generic ADF products and a broad range of issues related to the use of abuse deterrent technology. The FDA will take this feedback into consideration when developing the final guidance on this topic. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And please remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folston, attorney with Floyd, Skerrin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.